We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week's People I Sort of Know podcast, I'm Chase Parm, and this week's guest is Brett Basham. Brett played baseball at Ole Miss from 2006 to 2009. It's one of my favorite players to cover during the early part of my career covering the Rebels, and we talk a lot about baseball, talk a lot about Mike Bianco, how things maybe have changed in the last 15 years or so, and we talk about a lot about life. It's his sister Brittany passed away unexpectedly just over two years ago and all the ways that that has impacted, continues to impact him, grief and the lack of a timeline with grief. So again, a lot about life, a lot about um, baseball, a lot of stuff in here for you. Really good conversation. Brad uh, has become a friend of mine and I enjoyed the time that we had together here for this episode during the, uh, dur- during his day job. He does some, uh, some production for podcasts, videos, that type of thing. And then he is uh, he's an expert in in personal development and sports psychology. He works with Rhett McCabe there in the uh, in the Birmingham area doing that. So tons of stuff coming up here on this edition of the show. Really appreciate Brett's time. Let's get to it. Here's this week's show with Brett Basham. Brett Basham now joining us here on the podcast. Brett, I, I ran into you not long ago. It was good to catch up and then sort of put the uh, plant the seed for this podcast. Been wanting to talk to you for a a while. Just kind of following you on social media. We've stayed in contact throughout a little bit. Uh, you were at Ole Miss, I guess what 2006 to 2009. I feel 2010, something like that. I don't know. I uh, I feel a little old. I was telling somebody yesterday. I'm starting my 18th season uh, here in like two weeks covering the team, and you know, your family was probably one of the ones that I got to know the best early on. Um, your dad and I communicated a good bit. Obviously, covered you. And uh, I realized after a while, you know, I don't know the players as much now. And I was, I'm old. I was like 24 then. So you're the same age. You're just kind of hanging out with them in a way. And now, you know, I'm the guy when they walk up and go, hey, Chase, back in 01, what happened? And I'm like, oh, God, I hate that I know the answer to that. Like, yeah. I'm, that's that's kind of driving me insane yeah. right now. But it's uh, it, it's good. It's uh, it's I'm I'm obviously uh, still still doing it, still uh, doing a lot of the same things. And I, in some ways, it kind of keeps you young because I feel like I'm just on a season and a semester schedule every single year. It's where my right. life is dictated is simply by what part of the calendar year we are from an athletic standpoint. Sure. Yeah, it's been it, it's, you know, I can, uh, you know, just remember, you know, back in the 
back in the day. Because probably because we are old. Uh, first of all, like 2009. You're right. This is my last year. I mean, that's. I mean, we're coming up on the 23 season. That's almost 15 years. Like, holy cow. I feel like it was not that long ago I was playing, but uh, my body feels like it was a long time ago. I can tell you that. But, um, yeah, it was – now, I've always appreciated you and, and full disclosure. You always were very fair to me even when I sucked. Um, and then even when I was, you know, playing well, which wasn't very very much. So, um, so I appreciate all that. No, you you did to to cover us, and you know I just thought you were always very, you weren't a fan, but you were you know very objective and very fair, you know to players because you just you gotta you know from your perspective you gotta call it like you see it like you're not playing well, you know you got a job to do if you're it, you know and it's good training ground too especially with baseball because you mm-hmm. have so much access I mean we're at practice all the time and I'm not gonna get way down sure. the media hole because I've done that the last couple of weeks on the show and people start griping at me when I start doing that but <laughs> I you know because you but you, you're held accountable to some way because we were around you guys we still are every day to where I mean you're mm-hmm. at least seeing what's on social media you're seeing what's written you have the ability to go hey what's up I mean the the example that I always remember and I don't know maybe this was 2007 I think it was 2007 is I'd written something, you you guys were struggling offensively, and I had picked out a couple players that had, had whatever, and I'm, I'm sitting mm-hmm. on the bench in the home dugout, and I look up, and Zach Miller walks over, and he sits down beside me, and he goes, so I strike out too much, huh? And I was like, you know what? Jeez. You kind of are, and number one, and number two, I'll take it. I wrote it. I'm here. Dude. Like, let's let, let let's talk about it. So, you know. My rebuttal to that, I mean, <laughs> he's, one, he's one of my best friends in the world, and so, but we're like a brother – type of relationship but like uh-huh. i would say this to him it's like well stop striking out like that's a very simple thing you don't mean any like that's my job dude your job is to not strike out and my job is to write about it when you do strike out so yeah i mean i mean i'm i've <laughs> i mean i i'd give him crap about that um if i if i heard that like come on dude you still strike out what went through your head? What did you kind of feel, see as they went on this run this past season? I mean, Mike finally gets his title. What, 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 what from a guy who had been with him for so long, obviously uh-huh. a catcher too at that position with this staff the way they are. What was the summer like for you? Um, it was real. It was uh, to be perfectly honest, you was like bittersweet, super happy mm-hmm. for them, but almost like you could see yourself doing it a little bit and so you're kind of like damn it um just to be completely honest because you know happy for for laugh and and coach b um because you knew it was going to happen like i knew it was going to happen at some point too good of coaches too good of um too good of teachers of the game to uh have the struggles that they did um and so I was watching throughout the year and just kind of scratched my head at it because obviously a lot of talent, but, you know, weren't getting the results a little bit, a snake bit, I guess. And then um, the thing I was most impressed with was when they went on the run and there was like the don't let the Rebs get hot or whatever that was. Because it in today's day and age, it would be super easy. And I think 
players have the tendency to just go to the, well, I'm just going to look out for me. The season's done. It's opting out of bowl games, that, that sort of thing. Like, I'm just going to, you know, do me or whatever, look for the draft or, or whatever. But they stayed together and they kept playing, like just kept playing and hoping that, or not hoping, but like, I know the, the word belief gets thrown around a lot because like that's a core value and, and things like that. But it's kind of true. Um, if you show up every day and you don't complain and you put in the work, like there's no guarantee that it's going to turn out well for you, but it gives you the best chance because it would have been just so easy for them to mail it in and just say, yeah, this isn't our year. We'll, we'll try again. But like I was talking with laugh, ironically, the day that we talked in Oxford, I uh, went over to the the field and, and saw laugh and he was, we were just talking about, you know, kind of the, the behind the scenes and, his big thing was like coach B was outstanding as a leader. Like, Hey, I don't know what's going to happen. There's some pretty bad shit being talked Mm -hmm. uh, about us right now. These players don't need to see that they've heard it enough. Like we need to show up every day and do our jobs to the best of our ability. And then we'll see what happens. Like you, you need to, to come in and do your job um and bring energy because the second that they see you let your guard down and and you don't show up with energy it's going to be easy for the, the players to do it too mm-hmm. and so by them kind of setting the example and the players it takes a special group and special you know collective um good leadership on the team to to be like let's keep coming doing our job um, keep working at it and let's see where this thing takes us. And then you just need a couple, two or three things to go your way. And then, you know, baseball is like that. You get on a roll and you don't get beat in the postseason. Well, except for one. I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? Just like you can't, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, Mike, I think when I did all the research for the book, he was really open, laugh, Clem were really open. And they were talking about that. He only brought that up with the coaches one time, but it was very stern that one day it was after it was the Monday after the Arkansas series. So they, I guess that point they had fallen to seven and 14 in the league or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he basically walked in and had noticed that the coaches had were down and kind of had their daubers down a little bit and all this kind of stuff. And he basically, as you said, I mean, it was almost direct verbatim there, which you were talking about from laugh was, Hey, stop sucking your thumb. Show up every day because at least then you know you did all you could. Don't stop this and go, hey, I pouted for three weeks or I did this. He said, you know, I know your families and your wives are upset about it. I know they're hearing the internet and we could all be out of here to a job. But today mm-hmm. they're paying you to coach this baseball team. And that's it. 100%. So show up and do that. And well, well, that's the thing too. And I think that um you know, this comes from the, you know, like the the older I've gotten, the more people that I've been around that are much smarter than me and you know my current job working with Brett McCabe uh, from a sports psychology standpoint his big thing is like the kids athletes of, of today they will give they're hesitant to give a hundred percent like a full 100 percent because there's a possibility that I could fail and if I fail giving 100%, then what does that say about me? It means I'm not good enough. 
However, if I give 80%, 85%, whatever that mythical number is, sure, and I fail, at least I could say, well, if I would have given 100%, then the outcome would have been different. There's always that excuse to give. Well, I think with this this team, I think that's what the coaching staff did. And just with talking to them is just and, and listening to, you know, the, the documentary and your book and stuff like that is. No, there is no like 85 percent. No, you're going to go and give 100 percent because nothing in this life is guaranteed. Like if you give 100 percent and it's not good enough then tip your hat to it and say like, what more could I have done? Mm-hmm. Like there, there's nothing. Okay. So I wasn't good enough at that, at this particular time. Well, that's a, this particular failure, this particular, whatever is not, and it's not me as a person. It doesn't define me or this team. It defi- well, it may define the team for other people, yeah. but like, this is an event. Like, Failure is going to tell you what to do moving forward. Like it's positive feedback if you want to look at it that way. And so I think that's the big thing with today's generation is like 80% is like they're good with it because it gives me an excuse instead of going a hundred percent and giving yourself the best chance for success. Like it doesn't guarantee it. Nothing's guaranteed but it gives you the best chance to be uh, the most successful. Well, and I, and I think, I think Mike's evolved in that way, even from when he coached mm-hmm. you guys. I mean, I, I, I joke with laugh all the time about it. He's completely that, different. Yeah. I mean, I, I joke with laugh. Completely. I said, Hey, had that happened with you guys, you'd be running and he'd be yelling and screaming and like all that kind of stuff. And he, he told me in the fall of 19, I guess. So it's been a few years ago that he has to coach this generation of kid differently. There's more, you know, there's more positive coaching. There's more making sure they understand there's certain value there. And I think it took him a little while. I think there was a period of time where, hey, I'm I'm going to drive them more to the way I've always done it. I mean, how would you mm-hmm. how would you characterize that? I mean, what, what when you say he's different, what was he more like with you guys? The way he approaches like generations, because you got to think like you have to evolve with the generations. Like, you know, there's a, a ton of like not to get scientific on you, but like research mm-hmm. as far as like you know, how generations of, of athletes and just kids overall respond based on how they were raised, the society that they grew up in and were brought up in, and so how they were developed as, as kids. And so for us, he was very much, I mean, he was a competitive guy, very hardcore, like could get in your face because not getting like, more stern and more direct with you. Um, But there was also, I I think he was very good at like reading people because there were times where I was like struggling and I was expecting the worst. And he came in and, you know, basically put his arm around me and said, Hey, let's talk about it. So he's good about doing that. Um, But there were times like it got, just very direct, very truthful, and kind of like the um, you've seen the Augie Garrido thing on ESPN, yeah. you know, yeah. where he's yelling and stuff. So it wasn't <laughs> quite that bad, but like, I mean, he would yell and stuff like that. But everything he said was 
people have to understand he's, this is his livelihood. You know, his family depends on us winning baseball games. And when he, I mean, he says some stuff like that, like as far as getting on us or, you know, coaching hard, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, people have to understand like, He is coming from a place of don't listen to my tone of voice. Get the message. Like the message is this. I'm saying this because I'm competitive and I want to win. And I you can handle it because I've been with you since August and I know what you can take. You can take this. Listen to the message. Put the message that I'm giving you into play. But I think now, maybe now the, the, the athletes coming up are more the way that they learn and the way that they receive feedback and coaching is a little bit different. They want to know the why. You know, it's like, okay, we're doing a bunt defense or we're doing a first and third defense. Why are we doing it this way? Like they want mm-hmm. to know that. And coaches, Coach B has always been good about explaining the why, but they really have to know for it to sink in. Yeah. Like, why in certain situations, why do we, you know, why is it really important to get the guy to third base with less than two outs, you know, runner at second base, get him to third base with less than two outs. Why is that important? Um, so it's, it's not necessarily like, um, like an overhaul. It's more so like, how do I approach people? Like you have to build the trust with these players. You know, he, he it's, it's more so like, It's, it's coaches in general. It's more so like they've got to build trust with players before players will buy into what they're doing rather as seeing like coaches as an authority figure. It's the kind of the player coach dynamic I feel has changed to more. So the coach is more of a, an interpreter of what's going on then he is like an authority figure. Now, not like a hundred percent, but that's, it's kind of evolved to that point because for instance, like when I played you, your coaches were the ones that gave you feedback. There was no YouTube. There was no Instagram. There was no Twitter or anything like that. Like I have now they have direct access to the best players in the world on YouTube. Like I can go watch a video. I can go watch Mike Trout talk about hitting on YouTube for an hour. Like I don't need, you know, to listen, if, if Mike Trout's giving me information, it's probably better than, you know, over <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah. yeah. But it's like coaches now more than ever, like, how can I, in, how can players like interpret what they're seeing, help helping them interpret, um, building their relationship and, and really just having their back um, like this coaching staff did this particular year. And you just look what, you know, kind of look what it, what it did for him. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because somebody who hasn't evolved in any way, when that player is asking the why he takes it, interpret the coach would take it interpretive. 
hey, this isn't a debate. Like, you're, you don't get an opinion. I'm just telling you. Whereas it's no, Correct. let me just explain this, and then you will understand this is the reason. Mm-hmm. You have to let them almost realize I am right here. Here's why I feel that this is the way we should be doing this. And, you know, Mike picks his spots now. I mean, it's not that he can't still go to that 2007 mode, that 2002 mm-hmm. mode. And it's it's funny because I'll see it coming. I'll be standing out there in the outfield, and you tell, oh, he's pissed today. This is, this is about sure. to be one of those. And it only happens once or twice a year. But when it hits, he has their attention. They're all like, oh, God, who is this dude? And I'm like, oh, that's a Tuesday back in the day. Like, that was that was normal because they lost to <laughs> – Yeah. They yeah. lost to Southeast Missouri State on a Tuesday this year, like 13-3 to 3 or something. And, yeah. I mean, as soon as he walked out there, I went, oh, hell, okay. Like, and there's oh, the boy. hands and the whole deal. And, yeah, it dude, was – If you get the uh, hands it going, it's, it's – uh, <laughs> you can almost fill in the blanks if you get the hands going. But he's I think so much, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just saying going back to kind of that point, like he's always been very good at explaining the why. You know, from a catching standpoint, obviously it's been very well documented that he's, you know, tough on catchers, but has produced a lot of good ones. Because when I first got there, everything was like there are no pass balls. Everything is the catcher's fault unless the pitcher throws <laughs> it halfway up the backstop. <laughs> and I was like, that well, that doesn't make sense. But He's what he says without actually saying it is like, let me change your minds. Let me challenge you to be better than you thought you could be. And all of a sudden you start getting, you start blocking more balls. You start, you realize you can do a lot more than you think you can. And I think that's, you know, that's a challenge that he instilled in in catchers. And I think, that made me so much better by it, 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 it kind of challenged me to, Hey, I can get to just about anything that's thrown up here, whether it's blocking, whether it's receiving uh, anything like that. And, you know, I think that's why he's had such a good run of, of catchers, you know, since after I got there, I wouldn't even say I'm in the no, you top were, five I mean, of it, catchers it, anymore. It's funny you said that because you were the SEC Defensive Catcher of the Year in 2008. And from a stat standpoint, you're right. If a ball got by you, it was a pass ball. Like, I look at the official score and go, and he go, it doesn't matter. Mike's going to change it to a pass ball later, so I might as well do it now. And I'm like, you know, you're yeah. right. It, when it is Bill, it is. when uh, Bill Bunning was there as the yeah. sports information, I would like – because that was my thing. Like, I, I, I wasn't going to light up batting average home runs yeah. i wasn't gonna do that. i mean i just knew who i was and i was gonna help in other ways like to me there's no different in saving runs than in driving in runs i mean mm-hmm. i feel like it balanced out or at least that's what i told myself um but i talked to like i would i would there would be a questionable one where i'd block a ball or something and a runner would advance you know, because it got too a little bit too far away, you know, I'd throw down to second base and he'd slide in safe, which didn't happen very much. But, you know, there was an occasional and he'd, Bill would score to pass ball. I'd be like, Bill, what are you talking about? The ball's like in the dirt. He's like, not my rule. Yeah. Like, Bill, killing me. <laughs> no, but, um, no, and I love Bill, by the way. So yeah. it wasn't, you know, um, but yeah, it's just stuff like that where it just if you're a competitor and you want to be better, like that stuff makes you better. Um, and he had an innate way of like challenging you to be better um, than you thought you could be. So I don't know. That was uh, 
no, no, everything's no, it, a pass it, ball. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's you, you mentioned earlier that it was bittersweet when they won. And obviously, mm-hmm. which may be more than I mean, I've covered a lot of seasons, a lot of teams. That 2009 team, from just an unanswered question standpoint, because I think you guys are in Omaha and at least one of those teams that has a chance to win the crapshoot that's an eight-team tournament if Biddle doesn't get hurt, uh, given what was there. Yeah, of course. Uh, I guess my question is, now, I mean, you're in sports psychology. You understand life. We're going to get to that in a few minutes, all these different things. But at the time, was that the hardest one to kind of move on from, from an unanswered question standpoint with the way it ended in 09? I would say so, yes, because it was my last year. Yeah. But also, like, I thought we panicked after. I feel like that's the one time where we didn't really, but, like, we panicked after, I guess we played Friday or Saturday, Sunday, Monday. Like, the one time, like, I thought that we panicked um, because, like, we lost the, like, we won on the Matt Smith home run. Then we lost like a hundred percent after Matt Smith hits a walk off. Like you have the number five overall pick going, we're going to go like, we're going to win the game. Yeah. Like no question. And then, you know, we lose the game. Uh, and I feel like after that we panic and I was like, whoa, 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 what, what are we doing? Why we lost one game. Like, we've won series before where we've lost the Saturday game. Like, why are we why are we panicking? Obviously, um, but, but that's the one time where I thought, like, I would like to have it back because – or I'd like to – as a captain, because I, I was voted a captain, I didn't do a very good job, I'll be honest with you. I didn't do a very good job because of other factors that year, but I didn't do a very good job of, like, being the leader that I should have, but – if I could do it all over again, I would want to say, why, why are we panicking? Because I feel like going in to the game, it was just like a really uneasy feeling but going into game three. And it didn't need to be that way. Like, we were very much good enough. Nathan Baker was very much good enough to win that baseball game. Like, I caught Nathan Baker when he absolutely mowed down LSU on a Sunday. Like, I, we can win the game. And the way it started, you know, I thought we were going to. I, I just felt like I, I wish I could go back and, and kind of address, like, with the my teammates, like, why are, why are we panicking kind of thing. So, but Was as far as, only... like, my – Go ahead. Well, yeah, I got, I got no, a question about saying... the game, I guess. And, and I'll let you finish that. Was the okay, – yeah. did the panicking start – at the end of the game, or and I'm not going back to the whole button thing, but during that half inning, did it feel different too? I mean, because you guys, what's fascinating about that is you guys load the bases in the in the eighth or the ninth still after that to get back. You don't get the run in. But even after the button error, it's still only a man on. You know, I thought, and I've told Mike this, I'm not speaking out of turn. 100%. 100%. The one thing that I think, I wish he had done something differently, and you would have the best view of this outside of anybody else, is – go forth looked a little rattled right there once button did it feel like the crowd and the air got sucked out and david looked like it's a freshman looked like he sort of panicked for a second i said damn it i wish mike had just stopped and gone out there for a second just real quick to just sort of yeah i could have said something too like that's one that i i think about too um 
course, hindsight's always always twenty yeah, twenty because um, because yeah, I, I think that um, by you know someone, I think I wish I would have gone out there and just kind of brought the infield in and just to say because everyone sees you and everyone sees like at, at that point you're like a someone that everyone looks to mm-hmm. and just to calm everything down um because I kind of feel like some of the air had been sucked out of the stadium um i mean that that was one that yeah i wish you could go back and of course hindsight obviously but like go back and and do it do it all over again and you would kind of have some more calming words and 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 so i would i would agree with that i don't i mean i don't i want necessarily think coach b had to go out there and do it i mean i think mm-hmm. somebody like my like as a catcher going out there and because you probably have the because as a catcher you have like the best rapport with these guys and you know you're catching them you're seeing them every day you, again you have like the best view so um but yeah to, to kind of answer your question i don't think he necessarily needed to do that the 180 is you're making a bigger deal too when you do that you know what I mean? It's only a runner on first. 100%. You know what I mean? So you also could go the other way with that and go, hey, I'm freaking everybody out now by making it a bigger deal. So sure. it's a coin flip. Who yeah, knows? Um, it is. And But, like, there were plenty of opportunities. Like, the like Button came into my class, and nobody, like, I don't want to do this as, like, a brother thing, but, like, I will have the guys back for – as long as the error is talked about, because I mean, was it a, it was a routine play, but at the same time, like there are errors made all the time. They made one to give us the game on Saturday and in late innings, if I do believe to keep us in the game. And so, you know, there, that, that, like I could have thrown the guy out that stole the next pitch or something like that. So there are opportunities to where like, that shouldn't that did not lose the game like that that doesn't lose the game it's easy to pick on but like that didn't lose the game and the amount of like the toll that's taken on him uh is like really it's really tough to see as like a teammate and someone who you know you see the work that he put in and you see kind of everything that he put into uh, being a better baseball player um, to see that kind of, you know, reaction was, uh, was difficult. So. I hope that I have not talked to Evan in forever, but I hope 14 or this year has allowed him to absolve it some in his mind and then move on from it. Um, I know it did bother him for a long, from a long time there. Yeah. It's, so. it, it was tough. Yeah, it was tough. And um I try to talk, I, I keep up with him some on, and I think he's out in like Singapore or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I just sent him a message on LinkedIn because that's where I follow, follow all of this stuff and just told him I was proud of him for the way he was, um, you know, what he was doing and, and everything felt like he was, you know, really kind of coming into his own as far as someone, you know, as me watching from afar, someone who had kind of, kind of found his, his way and his vocation, if you will. 
Uh, so that was that, that was good to see. You educating me as we're talking here on some of the psychology parts of this and when in your current profession um, in, in different aspects of sports psychology, you were at Alabama from a leadership um, kind of mental role there for a while as uh, as well. How did that training or whatnot impact you? It's just I, I didn't do this on purpose, but it's just a couple of years after your sister Brittany passed away um, mm-hmm. unexpectedly in 2021. And I started following, you started doing a YouTube series, started following it, Thoughts in the Car, just giving whatever was on your mind that day regarding this and, and life in general. Mm-hmm. Your training and understanding of sort of the mind, how has that sort of impacted how you have processed and handled things since that that time in January 21? Um, I don't think it's helped at all. Okay. Honestly, because nobody can prepare you for the unexpected. Sure. Um, if anything, it's helped me to know that there is no, there's no timeline for grief and feeling better. There are no, you can take the five stages of grief that everyone talks about it and you can throw them in the trash cans. They don't mean anything. Now there are different stages that come at different times, but as grief is not a linear process. Sure. Like there's not, I wake up today and be like, oh, I'm in the acceptance phase. No, yeah. it doesn't work like that. And um, and I recently read something that the person that came up with that, the five stages of grief and the linear processes, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, she wrote On Death and Dying. And she came up with like, the, she was a psychologist, I think. And I read like an interview or a, a something with her. And then because when she wrote it, she didn't mean it to sound like it was a linear process. Like grief is not a problem to be solved. It's something to be lived with and moved forward with. And so I think people, when they hear like, okay, a person's going through grief, what stage are they in? Well, they could be in stage five today and then stage one the next day, because it's just such a, every day is different. And um, so I think, that, you know, just understanding, like, there's no timeline for this. Some days suck. I mean, it's been it's been two years, and some days feel, like, just as, like, as fresh as the day that Brittany died. Um, like, some, there are some instances of, like, I don't want to call it PTSD because I don't want to, say that uh, I don't want to be like insensitive to those who are you know in war times and stuff like that but I, I don't know how to refer to it any other way but like when I hear a gasp like someone gasping like they've just dropped something or and there's like the <clears throat> well I get taken back to January 29th 2021 at 218 central time when I got a phone call saying she died and I heard a gasp, my wife was actually taking the call and she gasped. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that's burned into my head forever. Like, so when someone gasps, I immediately get taken back to there and kind of like, I don't want to say it starts the process all over again, but it, um, it's not a fun time to be taken back to that place. And so, um, 
I would say just having an understanding, like take as much time as you need. Don't rush back into things. That's what I've learned from the training. But as far as like how to handle it, I don't think there is any handbook on how to handle it. You know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your perspective as well on it because, you know, we're in a club that frankly no one wants to be in and your situation is different than mine because dude, I don't, I'm a, I'm a dad of two kids and I don't care if your child was 14 days old or I don't care if your Mm -hmm. child was 14 years old, it's Mm -hmm. you lost a child and my situation is different than my parents. Like they lost, they lost a child. Sure. Like that's tough. And, you know, I'd be, so I'd be interested to hear your, your, uh, experience too. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. I mean, it's a process from, I mean, we're, I guess, almost, I mean, almost eight years, which seemed kind of amazing. It was April of 15. Mm -hmm. And... You know, yeah, you have immediate triggers. You have more long triggers. I tell you, I and this is, I mean, I guess I'm teasing in a way, and I haven't even asked her to do this, but I think I'm going to next week in this podcast is I'm just healthy enough mentally to, I want to do a podcast episode with the head NICU nurse that took care of Clark for those two weeks and go back sure. and talk about it. And it's taken this long for me to get to that point to go, okay, I'm ready to, let's go have that conversation. I did, 
I did a version of it with my pastor through our church's website a few years ago and their podcast, mm-hmm. but I've, I've never really delved into it with somebody else who was in the room at the time in a public forum. But, you know, it took me, it took me several years for even little bitty triggers, you know, cause he, he, he passed away at two weeks and they, he kind of everything was built around Superman. Well, I, when I got back home, I would run in the neighborhood all the time. It was, it's, it still is. It's kind of my stress release to get to relief, to get my mind in certain places. And there was a car that had a front tag on it. That was a Superman tag. It had to completely reroute my run. I couldn't run past it. Like I just totally, nope, no, I totally no, get not, it. not doing it. You know what I mean? There's certain things you hear that were are normal sounds that you go, Oh, that's a NICU sound. And it will forever be a NICU sound, no matter how normal it is in your daily life moving forward. So a lot of those things, I don't even know if they get easier as much as you just sort of train your mind to avoid them as much as possible. And you weave through in different ways. Um, no, it's a, it has been a process and I am, if I had, and I, I'm not mad at myself, I don't blame myself because you handle it how you handle it. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no anything. 1,000%. 1,000%. I blocked it out for a long time. I mean, I was back, he passed away on April 30th and I could go pull it up and tell you exactly. I was back covering baseball games in like 10 days. And, but I, I had nothing tough. else to do. I was just sitting yeah. there and I'm stewing and I said, okay, what can I do? And I mean, my, my coworkers go and do take time. What are you doing? I'm like, no, I need to get out of here. I need to go do something. I need to put my mind mm-hmm. on something else. And, you know, even when you go there, you're still thinking and dealing with the same thing. I mean, my first game back, we get done with interviews and Brady Bramlett walks over and just like hugs me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, okay, whatever. And then I get done with Mike and he's like, Hey, come here for a second. And we had about a five, 10 minute conversation and all these different things. So it's never leaving your mind. But for me, it was, get back into any sort of routine that will give you a minute of solace in some other way where you're not just sitting there. And it's, it's an interesting deal because now as I've gotten older, I'm better in that way. But if something is bothering me, it will have a tendency to paralyze me where I have a hard time getting through my day in normal capacities to do things, especially writing because you need clear head to go. How do I, I want to center? I can't even imagine. Yeah. And it's, you know, you get in such a mood, you're like that, that shit doesn't matter. Who cares about a baseball game? Like I, I can't drum it up to write this feature story on whomever and make this make sense. So it's no, look, it's, it's been a deal, but one of my personal, to me, one of my personal accomplishments is being at a place to publicly answer any question without an overwhelming emotion or just go, Hey, this is, this is what happened because I have all the feelings and I have these snapshots and memories, but I don't know that I really remember everything i feel like my mind almost is protecting me a little bit i don't have a real linear minute by minute thing of what exactly happened during the course of that period of time and it's frankly it was a haze a i mean he, yeah he passed fog. away april 30th my dad passed away september 11th of the same year um it was mm-hmm. just a few months of just you know i mean he was in the hospital when, when yeah or i went to the hospital right when clark was born like i remember the day that he died, he passed away in Le Bonner. He was in the hospital in Tupelo and then ended up passing away at Le Bonner. And when I got back to Oxford, I then had to go to the Oxford hospital and tell dad that he died. So like, it was just, that was, that, that was my day. You know what I mean? I mean, it was just sort of, sort of one of those deals, but no, it, it, it changes. Dude, that's a lot. It, yeah. I mean, it, it's. Dude, yeah. that's a lot. <laughs> I mean. It, Easier is yeah. not the word, but you teach yourself how to handle it. 
it's more manageable. Yeah. It's never going to get easier. Like it's like, so this is a thing I'm, I'm going to do something that I hate when people do. And so mm-hmm. forgive me because I don't think comparing grief stories is appropriate. I think your grief story is its own and it sucks just beyond belief. But I, I went, I, I guess I'm going to, I, I don't want to com- compare stories. It's, it's not what I'm going to do, but right after, like in a span of, um, so I probably lost four family members in like a year and a half span. It was like my uncle passed from dementia in September of 20. Uh, Brittany died in January of 21. Uh, my grandmother died um, in like July or August of 21. And then my grandfather, my dad's dad, passed of cancer in February, like coming up on a year anniversary of that. And so it was like, like I see, I, I'm looking at it from my dad's perspective, like handling all this the, the the death part is hard enough. Having to bury a child is like, and my dad's seen stuff that is like nobody should have to see. And then immediately having to turn around because my sister didn't have a will. And so you're dealing with, mm-hmm. you know, you're dealing with people that really that should care that there should be a humanistic side to this, but like people that really don't have the humanistic side and dealing with probate and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, then turning around and having to like bury his dad. And it's just like, ah, oh, man, it's difficult. Uh, but he handled it with so much grace. And my parent, like my parents handled the situation uh, with so much grace and so much strength. Um, like, I, you know, forever grateful for, for that and being the example. I just remember thinking like sitting in, so like January 29th, 2021, you're just sitting there like in the morning doing my work. I got a text from Brittany saying she had sent like, uh, two things from Amazon to my daughter, Charlotte, who was two at the time. And he's like, you have a, a daughter now. So like, I don't know if you've heard of these things called water beads, but oh, they I'm are well versed in water beads. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, they are yeah, awful. Yeah. <laughs> and they're everywhere and they're impossible to pick up. The only worst thing than a water bead is those little bitty hair tie rubber band things that make the bracelets. There's like 7,000 of them in a box. So if you haven't so gone there, avoid that. No, we're there. Or, no, we're there. They're all over or, the floor. Yeah. And I'm just or buy them, them for somebody you hate is a, is a gift for their kid. One there you other. go. There you yeah. go. Yeah. And so she said, hey, I've you know, got an Amazon package and it was a book for Valentine's Day and, and those water beads. And so I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I appreciate it. You know, just send it sarcastically. And she sent back some emojis and stuff like that. Well, that's the last time I talked to her. And like, she's dead three hours later. Like what is going on? And then thinking like 24 hours 
or less than 24 hours later, I'm sitting in a funeral home talking about funeral arrangements and like, what do you want to do like with her body and stuff like that? I'm like, Oh my, what is happening? It was just like a ton to process. And it's just something that I never thought would, you know, you're like kind of shielded from that stuff. Cause I never really experienced like striking out in front of 10,000 mm-hmm. with the bases loaded doesn't pale in comparison. Like that's nothing compared yeah. to. Yeah. That, that, that becomes pretty meaningless pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it, everybody has that version of the thing and you're right. I mean, no grief story is the same. And then some of the things I'm about to say, if you're, if I ended up recording with Renee down the road, then you're going to hear this again. And I apologize to listeners, but you know, it's one of the problems why people don't talk enough or why support through NICUs and child loss is hard because there's so much emotion as there should be with losing a child. But, you know, you have the person who has the miscarriage. Well, they have a certain level of grief, too. And then mm-hmm. you have the person who loses a child at two weeks. And, you know, you, you almost want to battle each other and go, that's not the same thing. You don't understand. You know what I mean? And it, it, it mm-hmm. kills communication in so many ways because there's these levels. Because what what, what you experienced with Brittany, what you know, happened with Clark, had he been, had he lived and been functional and all these type of things is it's one thing when your grandfather dies, it's something else when you're debating what was going to happen in their life, who are they going to impact? What was still to come? I mean, you know, we always, you see in the media today, everybody doing it on a celebrity level with Kobe Bryant passing away, but that's every young person who passes away. What, what was going to happen and who were they going to impact? I mean, I follow your your series stuff on Facebook. I mean, that is such the unanswerable question that adds to these, these levels of things. And yeah, everybody has that moment. I mean, I was that day, or I guess two days before. So it would have been April 13th, 2015. Uh, my wife had a doctor's appointment, went to it. Everything had been completely fine at that point, basically the halfway point in the pregnancy to the point that I didn't even go. I was doing a feature story on Scott Weathersby um, that day. Mm-hmm. And I had an interview and I was like, Hey, it's fine. Just call. I'm going to do this. Sure. And I had, I had turned my phone off or at least on airplane mode to do the interview. And when I come back, I've got like a call going, Hey, they're acting really weird. Something's wrong. Yeah. Hour later, I'm driving through a rainstorm to Tupelo. Three hours later, I'm meeting with a fetal specialist and 24 to 36 hours later, he ends up, basically I go into the, I go into the operating room or the birth room, delivery room or whatever you want to call it. And the doctor's words to me were, look, we're going to do all we can for anybody who's not followed the story. Clark was 23 weeks at this point and was growth restricted down to 20 or 21 weeks um, and said, we're going to do all we can. If we successfully deliver and intubate, intubate was the main part of this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So I'm literally just staring into another little room once the C-section happens and waiting for a thumbs up or a thumbs down, get a thumbs up. And he ends up at that point was at least that hospital and maybe in North Mississippi or a wider range, the smallest successful birth. Uh, He was born at 11.9 ounces. Um. So, and then, and then got through, I mean, no brain bleeds, got through several days of whatever. And then, you know, it's the same thing on the day that something happens. I mean, everything, look, it was a, a road that would, would have been longer than I can imagine, but to that point, relatively okay. And then you get that call and it's come here, go to Lebanon or do all that stuff. You know what I mean? And then, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it goes from there. So it's every single day 
has a chance to be that in some ways. And I think it's one of your messages as you, as I was going to ask you kind of why you started that series, why talking about it publicly is we, as just humans, we waste so many days when you don't know how many you're going to get, or at least acknowledging what's in front of you when the opportunity is there. Yeah. That's the big thing is um, it's just perspective. You know, I think that, um, you know, an event like that, so I was at one of the books that I read is called uh, it's okay not to be okay. I don't know if you've heard of it or, or read it or anything. I actually only saw it through your social. Yeah. So it's uh, I forget the author. I think it's Megan divine or something like that, but she's a, a psychologist and she's a grief counselor, ironically enough. And uh, she was talking about in the book, like, how, um, you know, throughout most of her professional life, you know, she was helping people, you know, deal with grief, but she had no idea, like, like just basically mm-hmm. spitting stuff out that she learned in uh, a textbook or in, you know, um, in school or, or training or whatnot, but then right. her, her partner drowned, um, I think it's a husband drown. Um, and then she's like going through this like crippling grief and it made her a better practitioner because she's like, how are, how, how are these experts in grief? Like never experienced it before. So how are they? And I get there's certain you know ways to train and, and stuff like that, but I think it gives you a certain perspective of it can be, it can be taken away just like that. And you hear that so many times, but when it happens to you, the whole, the, the, it takes on a whole different meaning and it takes on, and it hits so much differently and so much, so much harder. And um, so that's why I started the series is just like, uh, one, I, I like the content creation. I think it's fun. I enjoy doing it. And it was a way to, I look at it more so as if I talk about my sister, it keeps her alive. Um, and some people may not agree with that, but like that's how I choose to deal with it because because um, of, like you said earlier, like the impact, you think about the impact that, people could continue to have when their lives are, are cut short. And with her being a teacher, a second grade teacher um, in a low income school there in, in Knoxville, she, um, I saw firsthand the impact that she had uh, with her students, with the notes that they wrote her and, you know, just, just experiences that she would talk about um, at school and, and how she helps, helps some kids through some, some really difficult times. And, you know, I think that, so I feel for the kids that maybe would have had an interaction with Brittany that may have helped them out in a tough situation or something like that. And so I don't know where the series is going, but I'm doing it just for me as like a therapy type of mechanism. Um, and I do it in a sense that like, I think about stuff that 
she would be interested in or would like make her laugh. Like some of the stupid things I do on Instagram reels um, or like YouTube shorts or whatever. I say that stuff and I know she would just laugh and call me an idiot, but that's fine with me because one, I can picture that. I can picture her laughing. I can picture her like the infectious laugh and her calling me an idiot and it makes me smile. And you know, I think that's kind of why I do it. I know I, I'm not monetizing it. I'm not doing anything like that. It's just kind of a, a way to, to honor her. And it's also a way for me to blend in some kind of some things that I've learned in my time that have really helped me, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's stuff from a psychological standpoint or just overall how to not waste days. Um, and to, you know, I've, in, in, in talking about the book that I mentioned earlier, one of the things that hit me was like people view death as something like before I was this particular person and interacted this particular way, the death happened and that it's allowed me to become a better version of myself. Well, that could be right, but is it also saying something about how you were living before the event. Well, it's like, for me, it changed my perspective. Hmm. Well, my perspective was off before. I always thought, not always, but like, I like the, for instance, uh, the, the nighttime routine with my daughter, Charlotte, um, who's four now. You know, it was always a struggle because she, you know, she wanted to play and, you know, she's a toddler, typical like four-year-old. She wanted to, you know, do all this stuff. She wanted to read all the books. She wanted to play and do all that stuff with dad. That stuff I look forward to now. I look forward, as I as weird as it sounds, I look forward to it now because, one, like, she's going to be 18 when I – snap my fingers yeah and there's going to be a time where i want those book readings at night to come back when she no longer wants them and then there's also a fact that like i want to soak up every i want to get to a point where i can look back when my children are grown and hopefully have grown up and they've, they've moved on and, and have lived, you know, meaningful lives that like I did everything I could and was present every second to make sure that they, you know, that they knew dad was always there for them. And so I look, I kind of look, look at the perspective like that where I may not have before. Um, so that's, that's kind of how, I've viewed the whole process, if you will. Yeah, there's a version of that. And I mean, it's like a cliche thing and a self-help book mm-hmm. title, but it's it's just even shifting your perspective and keeping it on, I get to versus I have to. There's such mm-hmm. a difference in that and that thing of, oh, hell, I've got to get up and I've got to do this. Or I mean, even work. I mean, you're 
we're fortunate enough to have some of these things that you're doing that you work for for reasons why this is you know when you were younger this was the purpose is hey i'm trying to get into some of these spots or do this kind of thing mm-hmm. i mean it's it's all those different things do you keep notepads and notes i mean do you i mean how, how much planning is there into an episode is it just when something strikes you you start recording or are you kind of mapping out mm-hmm. things you want to say over the course of weeks or months i haven't like I, I keep ideas on my notes tab on my phone mm-hmm. um the reels like the short 30 second ones are or the reels are like the the shorts on youtube are more so like the quick hitters like the hey here's five things i've learned from this or here's a an interesting thing that i thought about driving my daughter to school and let me share it i think it's interesting um but the longer ones are more so um, things that I have been really impactful for me, um, whether it's managing your time, whether it's um, perspective, whether it's, um, you know, tell like uh, dealing with grief obviously is a, a big one now, kind of the reason why I started the series. But I, I kind of looked at just the overall umbrella of thoughts in the car is like, where do people have their best thoughts? Like, where, where does it come to them? Um, and so I just kind of thought and I was like, well, running or exercising It's like when I'm huffing and puffing, I don't want to sit there and hit record and try to <laughs> people try to get that, try to get a motivational something out of that so that so that's not going to work um then i was like well think about stuff in the shower probably not good for social media or youtube um and then uh i was like well when i'm driving you know my daughter's in the back watching youtube kids mm-hmm. i'm just sitting there thinking like okay well we can talk about this or talk about that and i'm like oh let's just call it thoughts in the car it's different like I can record it in the car. There's so many like self-help YouTube channels where you're like, you're like sitting on in front of a camera with a, a road mic, like trying to talk about something. So I was like, I don't want to be another one of those. So just something, something different. To, and so I don't, like I said earlier, I don't know where it's going to go, but I'm going to keep recording them and, you know, maybe it'll help one person. That's the goal. We'll start with one and then see where it goes from there. Do you drive the same loop every time? What are we doing? Are you actually driving somewhere? Uh, depends on how long the show okay. is. I waste a lot of gas. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes when I'm like running low on gas, because I live, uh, I don't know if you, so, I mean, you come to Hoover for the baseball tournament. Yeah. You know, yeah. we live in Hoover. Yeah, we live in uh, Ross Bridge, like probably 20 minutes from the Met. Mm-hmm. It's like, as the crow flies, it's probably like two minutes. But like, I mean, if, I feel like we got to drive 20 minutes to get anywhere. And so, so you're like, ah, I don't know if I got enough gas to 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 do this. Um, let's just film it in the driveway. So I like sit <laughs> my driveway. I look like a complete idiot. Um, so. It take it depending on how uh, depending on the topic and 
what I want to talk about that day is kind of the loop. People in my neighborhood are probably like, what's this car doing? Just driving around in circles. But yeah, the, the whatever. not he, he's not recording, but when I before I moved a couple years ago, I would run and I'd have the same truck pass me like 25 times while I'm running, and I'm almost like, hey, I'm not being stalled. Like, what's going on? And then I realized yeah. as it was happening day after day, I think it was the only way he could get his kid asleep. So he just drove <laughs> yes. while his kids slept every time. And I went, you know what? I respect it. Okay, whatever it takes. Have feel feel uh feel free. Dude, I've and, been there. And I've been there. Out. I totally get yeah. it. I totally get it. But it's um, um yeah. But it's, it's like it's you always know, like anybody can like anybody can do this stuff. Like I I record. I went to get so my budget is like this for the show, and so um. He said zero for those audio people. Zero. Oh yeah, forgot. Um, <laughs> and so I used my phone, and I went and got like this cheap um, phone holder at like Target or something like that. And then I just record. You know, the audio is enough. Uh, it's good enough. Um, yeah. And then I just use like garage band, not garage band, um, iMovie on, the on the, on the computer. I mean, we have premiere pro. I, I told myself like, I'm not going to use anything. I'd be disrespe- disrespectful for, you know, for my employer mm-hmm. to like use stuff that is for my job. So I have access to premiere pro, but I'm not going to use it because like they're not, paying me to do this youtube channel i'm gonna do it in my free time i get this question all the time but it's you know hey what do you do for your podcast and what do i need to do and always people want to start up in all these different ways but technology has gotten into 2023 where you don't need something crazy it's just not required anymore everything's good enough i mean sure for our studio we've got thousands of dollars worth of stuff because it's it's our job every day but Mm -hmm. i mean even right now i'm doing this it's gonna sound fine i'll throw it and i use adobe audition for my editing for audio I'll, i'll make it sound a little better but i've got a $50 mic on my top of my laptop. And then I'm using a blue Yeti mic that I just plug into a computer. And that's the exact same setup when I record podcasts in an office or something, as long as, as long as there's not hardwood floors or the room is huge where I need to worry about sound bouncing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I will go do a remote podcast. I'll go, Hey, what do you need? And I said, this mic in my computer, nothing else. It's fine. And I was like, Hold on, you don't need the sound. No, I don't need any of that. I'll, I'm, I'm fine. This is, yeah, this people works. like make it out to it's. <laughs> no, it's not as difficult as you think. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Phone, like I just can shoot in 4K with this thing. You kidding me? Yeah. Can't do well, that. I, with I, I'll do some podcast consulting for people, and I'm more than happy to do it. You know, and I mean, I'm you know sure. I mean, it's my time, so you can pay me for it. But a lot of times they're like, "Hey, we're going to need this." And I'm like, "I can get this done in like two hours." Like, no, you, we're, we're we're good. I mean, but I realize because the public is not aware of it, you could manipulate that out into making them think it is this hugely extreme process that it's it, it's not whatsoever. I mean, the actual, hey, how do I need to speak? What are some things I need to do to improve the actual podcast more than the production of the podcast is a completely different different animal. Um. I asked my class. Week, I, I would you, say uh, like, I would say on, on just on that note too, I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, no, you're good. As long as the audio is good. Like if you have good audio, then cutting a podcast is super easy. 
mm-hmm. like just I'm like wow we used to pay people like a lot like consultants a lot to cut these things yeah I mean it's the uh, way you know the way easy. our system the way our system is now or actually I think it's getting set up today is there's not even really a tails cut on our show in the studio anymore because they hit the main button the intro plays by itself. And as it's finishing, mm-hmm. I just start talking. So, I mean, you're not yeah. even having to go in and put the intro on it and move all that stuff around. It's, it's there. Just, it's there. It's canned. Yeah. I was going to ask you, are you shocked? Uh, Mike says he's going to defensive shift this year. We, we, we made another, uh, another change to five. He, he's going to, he's going to move some infielders around. He's uh, uh, here's really? the deal. until yeah. one time it doesn't go right. And he moves them and then they hit the ball where the guy should have been. And he goes, yeah. ah, the hell with it. Screw it. That's it right Screw there. It. So now we're going back to just playing straight up. Yeah. Just playing straight up. I've just never been. My whole thing with the shift is just like, if I'm a hitter, I would love someone to play a shift on me. Let's bunt. If I was left-handed, let's just put it. I was above left-handed hitter, but like hit a thousand. Like I understand like in the big leagues, like they're not paying you to bunt for base hits or whatever. They're paying you to hit home runs. But like, I don't know if, if you have good, if you have good, um, people on your staff that you know from an analytics perspective and stuff like that i can see where the shift would be you know beneficial there's Um, a really big plus and a really big minus because the minus is you just don't have the data i mean the seasons are short the plate appearances mm -hmm. are not high enough in a lot of ways the positive is not everybody is this all-around hitter and some people are just straight pull hitters and it is what it is and they cannot hit the ball the other way or they strike out on Mm -hmm. a lot of outside stuff or whatever that looks like and, and Mike explained that. He also said that you're having to teach an entirely different element of who covers what bag and make sure they understand where you're That's going the with a shift the communication. versus what the that communication. Like. Yeah, if you've never done it before, as far as, you know, if, with a runner, you know, especially with runners on base, stuff like that, you have to know. Or else you end up like Peyton Chatagnier and stealing three bases in one play. Mm-hmm. Uh, stuff like weird stuff like that. Um, um, which was and, ridiculous to me. Uh, and even in college so, baseball, it's trickled down. Not, people don't bunt much anymore, even comparatively. I mean, right. Ole Miss bunt is fewer than 10 times yeah. last year. Yeah, I think that's, you know, in a time where uh, the game has become more, I feel like it's become more offensive um, to where, look, I'm fortunate, I'll be completely honest, I'm fortunate enough that I caught when I did because the I feel like the catcher, especially at the big league level, um, is becoming more uh, is becoming more offensive. Mm-hmm. Like you start throwing these robot umpires out there, like the catcher, I feel like is going to become obsolete. Like the defensive catcher has become oh. obsolete. Um, because you know you don't you're not stealing like strikes anymore. I'm not stealing strikes because there's a robot umpire, but it, and, and it's weird too. Like this is, I'm, I'm kind of an interesting like segue into it, but like the way that I caught is kind of different than, uh, than they do it today. As far as like receiving and things like that, you see a lot more of like manipulation of the ball, especially like on the lower pitches, you see a lot more like glove movement, like back into the zone. Um, which is 
just on opposite ends of the spectrum as far as like what we were taught. I mean, we were taught is like once the ball hits the glove, like the glove, all movement stops. Yeah. Like stop the ball and keep, if it's a strike, keep it in the zone, but don't let a strike become a ball because it takes you out of the zone or whatever. And now it's almost like opposite. It's just like, if you can like the good ones, you can see like Dunhurst, I thought did a really good job of this is when I was really sort of noticing guys in the big leagues, like the, JT Rio Mutos of the world, like especially on low pitches, you like see them. It's all in like one fluid motion where they'll like get really underneath the ball and bring it back up. If you can like steal, it's like kind of like a different way to steal uh, strikes. So it's very interesting. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just completely different. Completely different. And then the one knee down stance, just like used to get made fun <laughs> of when I did a one knee down. <laughs> Like, like, why are you going to one knee? Just stay on your feet and catch the ball. Now it's like the, like, that's the model to do. Just like, this has been great. But you have to be, and I, I've heard kind of like some analytics on it that from a one knee down perspective, kind of at the big league level, they are not as worried about like guys getting from, you're taking extra bases from like a blocking or throwing standpoint because guy on the mound is probably going to throw a hundred. He's probably just going to strike this guy out. So it didn't really matter. Um, mm. Which is interesting. Um, I wonder like anything else, if there's going to be a reversal back. Cause then you always, like always direction. Curving. yeah, of course. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, we're I we're like so it, three, yeah. four outcome right now that, I mean, do we going to, do you start flipping that in someone's head? Cause it's, I mean, look, it changes everything. It changes the type of player you're getting drafted. I mean, Maybe a little bit of a bad example, but Jerry and Ely 15 years ago would have been a guy taken in the top two rounds just because of his speed and his athleticism with a ceiling. Sure. Project, it, it projects off the charts. Yeah. 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 And it, 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 it doesn't happen now. So I do kind of wonder what that, what that looks like from a, from a trickle over, uh, over time. Cause yeah, for y'all, it was simply, are you going to use the, the hockey helmet or the old traditional mask or something like that? There wasn't a lot of other innovations, innovations going on at the, at the moment, I guess. Um, yeah, I always got made fun of for wearing the hockey mask, but like <laughs> Coach B always used to rib me about it. I'm just like, my throwing mechanics were probably not the best, but they worked for me. And so when I threw, like I clear my head and threw, well, the mask always flew in my face, like the two piece oh, always okay. flew in my face. And so the hockey mask, I had clear vision and I could see better out of it. And so when I threw down, like, I could keep the visual with second base the whole time instead of dealing with a mask in my face. So it was functional. People wouldn't listen to me. How much? No, I'm just kidding. Of, I'm kidding. Like, no, no, no. They no. listen to me. They get it. They, so it's a couple good. quick hits because I know I've kept you way longer than I, I said I was going to. Do you, you mentioned social good, media. Do you think that has played a huge role in the players being different, different things? I mean, because, I mean, yeah, you, like you said, maybe the very end, you were starting to get the very beginning of it, but you weren't seeing the real-time feedback from either great comments from fans or pissed-off fans or just the public or whatever where, I mean, you are 18 to 22 years old. I mean, that can affect kids sure. mentally in a lot of different ways. A hundred percent. Like, I think the biggest thing I think that's affected uh, this generation of kids is uh, comparison and having – putting these um, 
you get everyone's best on Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. You get everyone's best. Like you don't see the flaws. You you see, you know, I don't care what we're talking about. We're talking about sports. We're talking about lifestyle stuff. We're talking about you see filters and you see someone's best. Because, I mean, I can't tell you how many times like I've taken a, a picture of someone or the like, you know, what's the what's the the tendencies? You go look at the phone and be like, oh, that sucks. Let's take another one. Whatever. And then you're putting the, the best possible picture out of 10 on Instagram. We don't see the you don't see the nine other ones that sucked, or you don't see the ones with your eyes closed. And so I think people and it, and I think it's the kind of the first, maybe the you know, the the first time in really history where I can see what my competitor's doing in California. Like they're not just a name on a newspaper. They're not a name on a recruiting site or whatever. I can see them in real time, like what they're doing. And there's a bit of like a, he's doing this. I really have to put the time or I really have to, so there's almost like a, I've got to be perfect. So there's like a perfection aspect and it's robbed kids of like, I feel like it's robbed them of the enjoyment of the game because there's always this level I have to aspire to get to. And they're always looking at like the next thing. And I think that's a little bit of like parental pressure. I think it's a little bit of the comparison game. Um, so whereas like when we were coming up, you know, we had message boards and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the worst I had to, to deal with was like some, no name yeah. person right on the message yeah. boards who said yeah, rebel 12 said you suck that day, but that's like, yeah, yeah. yeah whatever. Someone, someone said, uh, it was it stung a little bit at the time, but I'm kind of laughing about it now. Someone said, I'd be better off going up to the plate without a bat. I'd be more likely to get a hit without a bat. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I totally get it. I can, I can appreciate that now. And I'll laugh yeah. about it. Uh, you know, that kind of hurts when you're kind of in the thick of things. But, you know, I think there's there's so much pressure for kids to perform at the highest level all the times, at all times. There's like no room for error. And with the bom- bombardment of it's almost like you're not allowed to make a mistake or you're going to get crushed. Like DMs. I can't I can't imagine what some of these kids are getting in on social media, just DMS and and stuff like that. I can't imagine what people are sending them because that just wasn't around um, when I played, but it's, um, you know, see it, it it causes a lot of performance anxiety, like, and Brett's practice, you know, sports psychology, a lot of this generation, you know, he's probably seeing, um, maybe 50% of the kids he sees have some sort of like um, diagnosable anxiety mm-hmm. um, performance, just overall anxiety, just from, just from the expectations that are placed on them, either personal through family, um, whatever, but it's like, it's crazy. And it leads to full circle, the fear of failure. 
because there's a segment of kids today there's you're so worried about failure for lots of different reasons i mean not even get into mm-hmm. that but that that plays into it because it's they social media is this instant reaction this not gratification is the other side of it it's the negative of hey when i fail this happens so then it, it ranches up the anxiety it does all those things it, as much you obviously you work with support psychologists you're trained in, in that in a lot of ways is that keep you around sports a little bit in general you play golf or tennis i mean how, how do you kind of scratch that itch these days um i'd play golf every day if i could okay. um obviously you know get expensive and, and whatnot but love golf and unfortunately like brett works with a lot of guys on the pga tour so i'm in i don't know any of those guys never met them but like just being in proximity to those you hear a lot of the kind of their thought processes how they compete how they train kind of their just higher level thinking on the golf course um and in a way they're kind of like the average golfer they're just exponentially more talented they still have the same struggles they still have the same um doubts at times about their game some insecurities things like that um but it, it's just really neat to be in in kind of uh, proximity, you know, to that. So I I stay I stay around um, the game from that perspective. Baseball, you know, I watch college baseball. Like major league baseball is, I mean, I don't really watch it until the postseason. I just yeah. can't get into can't get into a uh, June twelfth game between the Marlins and the Nationals. I just can't get into that. Um, but you know, it's really cool from the golf perspective. Um, cause that's what I've, you know, something I can do for the rest of my life. So just trying to, um, kind of some of the stuff you learn as an athlete, you take it into to that as far as kind of processing information very quickly, whether positive or negative and like getting to the next shot. Uh, every shot having a life of their own different strategies on the golf course. I've learned just mm-hmm. being around Brett and just the things that he teaches um, with like course management and stuff like that and how to approach different shots is, uh, you know, pretty interesting and kind of makes you think just like, huh, maybe I shouldn't go try to drive every single short par four, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and lose it in the trees. Well, and you guys, you guys are frustrating too because I mean, I've pl- I've re- not routinely, but I mean, every once in a while, I play with some of your former teammates and people around here and stuff. And all you guys have like this excellent hand-eye coordination. You go, oh, well, I see how you were a D- Division One athlete. Okay, like yeah, you're better mm-hmm. at this game than I am for these reasons or whatever. Or even eyesight. Like a couple guys are like, hey, yeah, your ball's over there. I'm like, oh, that's how you saw the seams or red pitches because I don't see anywhere near what you're seeing right now, 400 yards away. Like it's it's yeah, it, it it'll it'll humble you a little bit. No, a hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. And like, so I don't know if that like fully translates. Cause I, <laughs> it's one of those things where like golf's obviously one of those things where you got to practice. You like, you have yeah, to put yeah, in yeah. time. Um, because I think the biggest thing with golf and like why you have to put in the time is just because like distance, like you talk, talk about, you know, it's not easy to, for me, it's not easy to, Stay at my playing weight. Let's just put it that way. And so sure. you talk about distance control. Like I could go out and play in in March, for instance, and not play again until October. Well, I may have 
lost some weight because I've been working out or may have gained some weight or, or whatever. And so all that goes into how far I hit the ball and how far, you know, there's just so many different factors. I feel like that it's so frustrating to go. Cause my, like I, I love the game and I go play with my, you know, my dad, he'll just roll out of bed and shoot and shoot par. Mm-hmm. Just so frustrating because I'm like, it's, I want to be good, but it's I'm just, I've come to resign to the fact that I'm not going to do it. Yeah, it's a good life lesson. Everybody has their good, and whatever that is, you're working toward your good. You, you, you kind of, you kind of, you're good in golf for the, uh, for the most yeah. part. So, anyway, and it's, yeah, um, it's like, um, it's kind of like again managing expectations. Like, I never practice. I rarely, you know, I play. I may play five, six times a year um mm-hmm. now because of kids and whatnot so why would i expect to go out and shoot in the 70s when i don't put any time into it like that's setting myself up for failure i shouldn't have expectations to shoot in the 70s yeah. if i never play i mean come yeah. on yeah just have fun you get you, you get one of those five or six days enjoy the four hours five hours whatever you can you can stretch yeah. it into and let that uh, let that be. And that. you hit that one. It's, you hit that one shot on sixteen to like five feet, and you're like, "Yep, that's why I do it." Yeah. And then you're like, "I can do this. I can do this." So, yeah. but well, appreciate it, bud. Like I said, I've kept you a little longer than I meant to, but great stuff. Uh, so, still watching good, the, watching the YouTube. I'll link it in and uh, let's uh, sure. let's talk again as the season gets going. Absolutely, man. Appreciate right. the time as always. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.